This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. We are continuing with our special edition entitled The Future of the Joint Force, which focuses on innovations within the U.S. Department of Defense. Today, we are shifting our focus to Australian Defense Forces. Australia, as you know, is a vital ally, partner, and a friend of the United States. The United States and Australia maintain a robust relationship underpinned by shared democratic values and common interests. U.S. and Australian forces have fought together in every significant conflict since World War I. It is our pleasure to have with us Brigadier Ian Langford, who is the Director General for the Australian Army's Future of Land Warfare Directorate. Brigadier Langford has held a range of command and staff appointments in the Army and Special Forces during his career. He has served as the Commanding Officer, 2nd Commando Regiment, and has commanded multiple Special Operation Task Groups in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's a distinguished graduate of the United States Marine Corps Command and Staff College and the School of Advanced Warfighting. Brigadier Langford, thank you for being here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've been an admirer of uh, this podcast and the work that you contribute to uh, for some years now. Uh, And I understand the great opportunity I have today to be able to not only contribute to the broader discussion uh, that we are all interested in in the context of national security, but also to listen to the ideas of uh, you, your contributors and your listeners themselves in this ongoing discussion around military modernisation. Thank you. So before we begin, uh, we would love to learn more about your background, your journey uh, to your current position. Uh, thanks, Harbury. I joined the Army in the early 1990s. Uh, it was in the time of a deep economic recession here in Australia. It was also at the end of the Cold War. And uh, much of my memory uh, in joining the Army was that we were uh, at an inflection point in terms of understanding our role in a uh, non-Eastern-Western uh, bloc-defined global system. Uh, after commissioning as an officer in the mid-90s, I served in infantry and then went to Special Forces in 1998. Uh, in that time, uh, I've done deployments, as you mentioned, to the Middle East, across Southeast Asia and the Southwest Pacific. Uh, I've taken an interest in future warfare, really, uh, from the time uh, as being a commanding officer, particularly as it relates to using technologies and tactics to offset um, the challenges that uh, middle powers with modest defence forces like Australia have when competing in the international system. Uh, After my time at SOAR and in coming into my current appointment as Director General of Future Land Warfare in the Australian Army, uh, it's becoming apparent to me that uh, we have received clarity from our leadership and direction and guidance from our commanders to really accelerate the inculcation of technology uh, as a key capability enabler in our military, but also to accelerate and pull, if you like, the future towards the present to be able to again achieve asymmetries and offsets relative to the pacing challenge of the security system, but also recognising 
that we will be increasingly asked to do uh, tasks and to solve problems that are not part of our traditional mission set as we understand it. That, that's, that's great, that's very helpful. <clears throat> so as, as you know that uh, transforming um, the current workforce is a, a major imperative for uh, all military organizations. And as we look at the AI and uh, th this era of AI in which uh, technology is rapidly accelerating, this imperative becomes even more important because uh, finding and cultivating people who have the right skills is really difficult. So how are you thinking about uh, people within your organization? Uh, it's true, uh, and it always been the case in the history of our army, that people are the centre of our capability. And I'm aware that's a little bit of a throwaway line, but every time uh, parts of our organisation uh, think otherwise, and they're rapidly proven that uh, this remains the case, um, the Australian Army relies on the human capital that our society and communities generate, and it's indeed a privilege for us to be able to bring those people in uh, into our organisation to, to train them and to, um, you know, really uh, allow them to be part of service to the nation. The challenge, however, in recruiting the right people with the technical skills, with the capacity to be able to think more broadly beyond uh, their education or their military courses, but to be able to think about complex problem solving and how to... Um, again, uh, team with non-traditional partners to generate solutions is the core problem that I think many of our militaries face as we recapitalise. There tends to be uh, somewhat of a, an attention or a focus on equipment and platforms as they come into service, which is at risk of potentially being overstated when you think about the challenges of getting the right people into those platforms and onto that equipment to operate it in the way that it is intended. So this challenge about accessing human capital in a really competitive environment where uh, companies uh, and governments and societies are evolving to meet the challenges of this century uh, means that the Army needs to be an employer of choice. Our values, our culture, our opportunities that we provide for those that come in to serve in ways that allow them to be empowered and meet their full potential is the challenge that we all have now as we move into the middle part of this century. In, in that context, uh, how do you uh, think about curating and uh, managing this workforce? Are there certain tools that you're using? Uh, what are the approaches that you're taking? A real challenge is being able to give people opportunity to essentially meet their expectations. Um, you know, the nature of work is changing, but so is the character of the workforce that are coming in. They have expectations that meet essentially the promise of the recruiting campaigns. So when we in Army say that we will give our people a lifelong experience with cutting edge technology, we have to mean it. And that means whether you are a private uh, having just joined the Army and have completed your initial training, or you are a general commanding the Army, uh, your access into having an ability to solve problems, but also to be able to uh, link quickly with technology as it becomes available is critical. Because we know that after uh, initial service, if our soldiers 
and young officers are not valued if they're not satisfied that they're giving training, education and learning opportunities to access technology quickly, uh, they will vote with their feet and that would be a loss to the military. It's also expensive to replace those people and frankly it's unacceptable when it comes to being able to meet the kind of mission requirements that we need that demand the best people with the right skills in those positions for decades or more. So as you accelerate uh, technological scale, how is the Army looking to leverage the cognitive advantage of uh, end user communities such as the Australian Army's innovation and experimentation group uh, who are experimenting with emerging technologies such, such as AI? We, we have several initiatives uh, in the department and in the, the Australian Defence Force as well as in the Army that allow uh, both industry uh, individuals, uh, our soldiers serving in uniform uh, and government agencies themselves to be able to um, demonstrate innovation but also to be able to prove technology in its high-risk integration phase and bring it in quickly if indeed um, the, the, the capability itself is able to be realised. So whether it be uh, the Department of Defence's Next Generation Technology Fund uh, whether it be through the Army Innovation Day events that we sponsor with industry to allow industry to present to us and we accept uh, the burden of bringing these technologies to fruition as a partner with that industry through that mechanism or whether it be the ability for soldiers to be able to uh, nominate um, submissions through their chain of command that we can test and evaluate rapidly and bring into service quickly if required. All of these vectors exist to allow uh, both traditional and non-traditional pathways for either industry governments or people to be able to partner with Army to bring capabilities to fruition early. Some good examples of that include um, integration of uh, manned unmanned teaming within our infantry squads, as you call them, or we call them sections. Um, the use of leader follower technology in some of our echelons to allow, again, us to be able to scale and mass without relying on uh, people. We can, we can have a leader, uh, which is manned, obviously, or not, uh, but obviously the followers are not, and that's the residual benefit. Or whether it be also in the uh, F echelon or the close combat piece where we seek to de-risk some of the uh, high-risk manoeuvres to include obstacle breaching and others by increasingly introducing uh, mechanical tools and uh, technologies that allow us to de-risk it in terms of people so we can protect them and preserve them for what matters most in warfare, which is that human-to-human -human context that ultimately decides uh, battles, uh, wars, and the fate of nations. When, when it comes to um, thinking about these technologies and personnel, are there any uh, platforms or tools that you're leveraging today? We have a couple of initiatives in our army with some uh, academic and uh, vocational skills institutions, and they are at an organisational or an institutional level, uh, and they are long-term in their partnerships. So, for example, uh, our technical trades, which, as I said, are moving from uh, the traditional uh, trades that we would associate with vehicle mechanics or fitter armourers and so forth, to now also include computer technologies and advanced and applied sciences. Our relationship with um, some of these TAFE and university institutions now 
allow our soldiers and our officers to effectively dual track their careers. They don't have to choose one or the other. They can be in service in uniform and also belong to an academic institution as a student or as a faculty member to progress and develop their own technical skills. And so that human to human uh, pairwise relationship, if you like, allows us to keep that soldier in uniform and they can provide service, but also allows them that cutting edge access when it comes to emerging technology, which our universities are so uh, famous for. So the mechanisms really is that partnership at an institutional level, um, but also the use of industry placements and the deeper integration, I think, over time of defence industry, be they uh, prime integrators or equipment manufacturers, that develop a seamlessness between those that build and maintain these capabilities and the end user. So again, those learning loops are shortened significantly and we get the right equipment at its highest level of proficiency to be able to operate when we need it to. AI and uh, many of these emerging technologies, they, they both have uh, a positive and, and negative impact on uh, soldiers and others working within the military. Uh, given your position within the future of Land Warfare Directorate, what are some of the things that the Army is doing uh, or looking to address uh, uh, you know, that, that would be helpful in alleviating some of the negative impacts of AI and, and also leveraging some of the positive uh, advantages that it may bring? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think, again, uh, in one of your previous con uh, podcasts, there was this uh, discussion around um, how do you use AI, both in the context of what I call the business of defence. So that's all the data processing, for example, or the increased automation in our supply chains that allow um, defence as part of government to function more efficiently. And then there's the profession of arms, and that's where we want artificial intelligence to augment, for example, our decision-making. Uh, and an example I can think of is if we apply the, MDD, uh, the, the military dis deliberate decision-making process, or as we call it, the joint military appreciation process, to that course of action analysis uh, phase, the third phase, where you're using wargaming or intuition to make judgments over which course of action is better than the other. Given the amount of telemetry data that's available now on our equipment and our understanding of um, uh, tactics, techniques and procedures, there is absolutely a role for artificial intelligence in that course of action analysis phase of deliberate decision making. It allows that balance between objective and subjective discourse, noting, of course, that it is an aid to decision-making and the commander is ultimately the person that makes the decision and these systems are there to supplement his or her thinking. So, again, AI brings the data capacity that uh, previously was not, um, was not accessible for deployed forces. Well, we can now do this with both the capacity to pipe information to the rear, where the real processing high-performance computing can enable decision-making to occur, but also in our deployable systems to allow a lot of this data processing and analytical survey to occur to support decision-making. In fact, it's been happening with weather forecasting for 30 or 40 years or longer. It's about integrating these systems and this decision support framework into our warfighting. That is where the real advantage will occur. 
And and <clears throat> would the approach differ with another unit like the special forces, or would would it be the same? I think to some degree. I mean, the process of decision making uh, is similar. So there is dual purpose, dual application approaches that would benefit the entire force. But where tempo is an issue, and in special operations command, in certain instances. Uh, tempo because you are typically smaller as an organization and you're looking to create relative superiority to quote uh, William McRaven um, That's where you could definitely use uh, decision support tools and data analytics to be able to de-risk missions um, The management of risk is not the elimination of risk and so for special operations and for other parts of the capability that are smaller and rely on tempo to offset their uh, their size using that analytical support is absolutely uh, something worth fully exploiting and in the context of um, you know essentially being able to generate the kind of tempo that you need to outmaneuver or outposition an adversary um, that, that that is an opportunity rich for organizations to include special forces and again i know there is work happening and i commend those that are, that are getting after it this episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expropy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expropy.com for more information. I want to take a moment to invite my colleague, uh, Adam Wood, to join the conversation. To follow up, uh, as the Army continues to integrate its people um, into an environment that's surrounded by AI and other emerging technologies, what will be the potential mission impacts if soldiers uh, and other operators are not properly recruited uh, and skilled and placed and managed? Yeah, I mean, we're now literally swimming in a data lake, and I know that term's been used by others, but that's that's now the context that we need our um, military leaders and our units of action to think about when they understand how they interact with the world. I mean, again, it's a little bit cheesy, but it is like the end scene of the first of the Matrix movies where suddenly Neo realises that the world literally to some degree, is a case of ones and nuns. That integration between the real world, the human-to-human context of warfare, and the fact that we now operate beyond the land, air, and maritime domain to include space, cyber, and I think US Army doctrine talks about the human domain, um, is the reality of our circumstance. And so having our people who are able to think in that context with the concurrence of understanding how to unify and converge domains at decisive points is critical. And that's a human problem, not a technology problem. So it all comes back to what is the centre of gravity, the centre of raw power for military capability, and clearly it's our people 
who themselves derive their heuristics and their schema from their values and the principles by which their parents raised them and the societies and communities that they represent, all of that combined gives uh, a, an opportunity for militaries to then take that talent, that raw talent, to be able to twin it with technology and then to be able to apply it as part of the military instrument. But it all begins with the people. And when I say people, I'm talking about, um, you know, uh, the Adam Wood of 2030, who's just out of college, uh, could join uh, another US uh, national security agency, could join the military, could go to consulting, could go into the, the private sector somewhere else. That, that person, that Adam of 2030, is only one or two deep relative to what the societal workforce demand will be. So how does army, how does defence get to the front of that queue? Because we need them more than they need us. And that really is the transformational challenge in terms of how we recruit in parallel with the emergence of technology. Uh, it's interesting, I was just reading, I'm reading a biography on Winston Churchill, as you do, uh, and the chapter I've just finished is when he was in charge of the Royal Navy uh, in the pre-World War I era, where he essentially transformed the Royal Navy from uh, coal-powered ships to dreadnoughts that run on oil. And, you know, he was threatened with the resignation of the entire Admiralty uh, almost daily. Um, he had to uh, divest out of coaling stations, which really were the, the artery or the pathology of the British Empire, uh, and instead start to hedge significantly with Middle Eastern uh, countries and their um, commercial fronts to buy oil contracts because they knew that they needed 29 dreadnoughts to outpower their adversary, who were about 22, 23. The transformational challenges were significant. And the reason I bring that up is to say that, you know, we, we have done this before. What is different this time is the pace and the scale by which this transformation is occurring. But I would commend people, if you want to study in military innovation, particularly when the innovation was in direct competition to the worldview of the leadership of the day, then look at that period in the pre-World War I era of the recapitalisation of the Royal Navy from coal to oil and the introduction of the dreadnought, which proved so decisive at the Battle of Jutland and ultimately had a significant hand in forcing the decision for Germany to seek terms at the back end of the First World War. That's just one example. I really appreciate everything that you just said because we, you know, from the understanding of an internal reference point of where it starts for a person and, and a person's evolution over time, uh, what matters to them, what shapes them. And mm -hmm. then to take that to uh, explain the extent to which we are a community of nations um, and how we operate based off of and what we can learn from our history um, and, and the implications of the pace at which and the, the speed at which uh, AI and tech is changing. Because we are cognizant of the extent to which quantum will pose yet another challenge. Um, and so is there, is there a timetable on when the army, uh, when governments writ large needs to begin implementing a comprehensive system to accelerate its warfare capabilities? Um, 
and as you as you talk, you know, are there any special principles and considerations associated with that acceleration to drive that system? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, the system as we knew it is essentially fragmenting. And for professional militaries, there are um, two contests going on. The first contest is that contest for labour, and that's happening inside our systems. And it contemplates this notion of, you know, the reason most people join the military is not the reason that keeps them in or the reasons they stay. And so, again, you know, being able to um, represent uh, our community of nations, to use your term, which I think is an excellent one, in ways that epitomise our values and beliefs is sacrosanct. And that needs to be first and foremost in our leaders' minds when we pitch this notion of why would you want to join an all-volunteer force? Because it is all-volunteer and, again, keeping these people who are very expensive to recruit, um, very significantly invested in and therefore very expensive to replace, um, is, is the first contest that's happening. So that contest is constant. It's good for the nation but it makes it really hard for the military because we are competing with uh, the best and brightest across the private, public and government sector for that, that labour pool. And, and, you know, it's really, really important. Um, the other piece, the other contestation is clearly that as it relates to the pacing challenge or the, or the threat. Uh, and this is where, again, um, you know, we win early with emerging tech to include AI, quantum and robotics um, in, in terms of how we compete with industry and in the labour market. But the big capability wins, the big payoff is relative to our capability and how we field this equipment to give us the kind of decisive advantage that we know we will need in order to be um, successful. And so in that context, um, defence industry, defence science and technology, uh, the military themselves need to partner in such a way that allows... Egos to be put to one side. Capability, when it is um, identified, to be able to introduce it into service rapidly. Uh, technical risk, career and reputation risk, organisational risk to be managed as opposed to eliminated. You know, the way to eliminate risk is by not doing it at all, and that's just not acceptable anymore. We've got to manage risk. Uh, and that gives us the high payoff opportunity um, that we won't, ever realise if we don't accept the kind of organisational courage needed in order to be able to accelerate rapidly these new equipments and these new technologies uh, in order to achieve that decisive advantage. I mean, we haven't cracked, as a community of nations, we haven't cracked quantum yet, but we will. And whoever does it first will win for the 10 years following. And that's how serious that capability is relative to what it could do in a transformational context both for not only national security, but for, you know, the international system more broadly. I think it's largely the same with AI, albeit, you know, there is um, much to be celebrated in terms of fielding that capability, but its potential impacts are enormous. I mean, they are mind-boggling, particularly as we shift from, um, you know, a hardware-defined military to a software-defined one. So, you know, we have to compete... We have to win the contest for labour and for talent. We're going to win the contest relative to capability. And it's not an either or, it's both. And that's the challenge for all of us. There's an increased collaboration with academia. Uh, you've got DOD setting up shop in places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where you've got 
some of the the best universities. Uh, you have folks uh, going out to Silicon Valley and collaborating with startups. Uh, are you seeing similar uh, a, a sort of uh, engagement uh, within the Australian army, partnering with academia, private sector companies, and even other governmental entities to support tactical and strategic readiness of the army? Uh, yes, we are. And again, I think, um, you know, all credit to the US who are, um, you know, real leaders in this field. We, we have a partnership essentially with um, leading universities, many from the Group of Eight, uh, both for the Army and the Australian Defence Force. Um, we also have in our Defence Science and Technology Group um, the development and the recent release of its strategy, um, which includes, again, thickening our relationship with both uh, research and development in the private and public sector uh, to solve uh, some of our more challenging capability uh, problems, um, but also in terms of bringing in um, uh, uh, industry and academia into the workplace. So when I go to my uh, office now, five years ago, it would have typically been a 90% army flavour with a 10% public service or civilian flavour. That's just not the case anymore. It's probably now oh, 49 to 50% army and the rest is a mix of Air Force, Navy, science and technology, research and development, industry contractors uh, and others. And it's a really rich environment and we are so much better off for it. So the kind of collaboration that allows um, me to be able to put um, young officers into artificial intelligence uh, master's programs at the Australian National University with Genevieve Bell, who's a world leader, having spent many years in Silicon Valley, is now normal business. Um, the opportunity for me to be able to uh, uh, outplace individuals with industry is, is accepted uh, and indeed to some degree is almost expected as we develop our people uh, going forward. And industry don't have to uh, suffer the sort of indignity and the rigmarole of going through a Department of Defence telephone book to find the right person to talk to anymore. They're now very welcome to make direct contact with us and we can become a better customer and a better consumer of what they are providing through that closer relationship. So we are definitely um, trending in the right direction. Uh, there is still much to do. Um, we can't solve all of our problems, but a combination of science and technology, research and development, the Australian Defence Force uh, and, um, you know, our partners to include yourselves uh, is, is how we build the solutions for the future. Can you describe uh, perhaps an example or two of what those interactions look like uh, with, with the, these stakeholders uh, and uh, any reforms uh, you're making uh, to reduce the barriers to entry for some of the companies? Yeah, so we have, um, uh, we've got some um, memorandums of understanding with some defence companies um, that allow, again, them to um, work on the same projects and share the same information at the right classification, um, which, again, five years ago would just never have happened. Um, we've got uh, a good example of cooperation um, with... Uh, British Aerospace, for example, in the Australian Army when it comes to the optionally crewed combat vehicle proof of concept, um, which you'll find online. But that essentially looks to understand how we can introduce unmanned systems to augment our manned capabilities in a close combat armoured vehicle scenario 
which will be defined essentially by operating in a large uh, mega city. That, that is happening right now. We've got, as I said, individuals at the Australian National University. We've got research agreements with Deakin University as it relates to the um, introduction into Army of Leader Follower technology using LiDAR and some emerging uh, leader capabilities. And we're also in partnership with the University of Technology Sydney uh, in um, a AI-assisted um, uh, cognitive uh, partnered proof of concept, which is the clumsy way of saying, how do we use technology to help us think more clearly, as opposed to how I just explained it. Given your position within the Allied Forces, I'm sure our viewers would enjoy hearing your thoughts on the, the broader AI landscape more uh, from a global perspective. Uh, how do you see that influencing what special operations are doing um, in the AI space? Uh, are there certain investments being made or certain yeah. steps being taken? Well, I, think, I mean, just this notion of automation um, is it's, it's a river and we've all kind of fallen into it. We're now, we're now all being swept downstream. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of know what it is, but we don't really know how to uh, both, I think, codify it understand what its limits are, but also what its opportunities, um, you know, that present. So I think what, I, what I'm looking for is this, this automated uh, uh, driven decision-making, these micro decisions that you see in finance and trade, um, understanding what part of the decision-making process we need to preserve for humans and what part can be automated, I think, is how we free up our brain space in terms of focusing on the big decisions. So again, a little bit like weather forecasting, you've got a whole bunch of telemetry data that needs to be interpreted and then given a degree of probability because the weather is, you know, is still a, a healthy combination of art and science. And I would suspect it's the same with military operations. So even though AI becomes more diffuse and automation processes become more um, familiar to us in terms of our back of house supply chain and resilience processes. I think the, uh, the paradox to all this and a way of potentially passing your question is by reversing it and asking what are those things that need to be distinctly human? How do we protect that? How do we retain that? How do we um, project our national values in our culture by protecting that human to human component of what we do? And then we aggressively automate everything else. And we look for AI, um, you know, with, with an unrelenting focus for everything else. And that's how you build, I think, the brain space and the kind of metacognition you need to be able to be successful in modern conflict. Well, very true. I think the, <clears throat> we, we often forget uh, the human element in all of mm. this. So uh, I think uh, it's a wonderful point. Any parting words for our audience? Look, I think, um, again, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been really wonderful to be able to contribute to your broader body of work, but also the opportunity I've had in listening to yourself and others in uh, your other podcasts. It's been fantastic. And, and this will become a trusted source for uh, the Australian Army going forward. Um, look, I just think, you know, the, the, the notion of fragmentation and its accelerating impacts on the global system mean that... Uh, um, you know, trust, alliances, um, commitment really matter. Uh, and I can certainly speak in my own experience as it relates to 
my work with the US Department of Defense, that, that's been a hallmark of my career. Um, and I know we're going to need more of that and not less. And this is Ian Langford speaking uh, personally as opposed to me professionally. So, you know, I still uh, have great confidence that the great institutions of the world to include uh, those in the US like Harvard and Stanford and others, as well as ours here in Australia, um, can give us the tools to be able to negotiate this very challenging period where humans and the human experience is changing. I mean, much of our life is what I call a sentient experience now. It's not in the physical realm. It's happening online. And what does that mean? And we're all grappling with this. And so whether it be fake news or whether it be, um, you know, uh, the acceptance now that globalisation, I think, is a sub-theory of humanity. It's not a theory of itself to describe the world. Is, is part of the challenge. And I just think we just need to work together. And I, again, I give great thanks to you and your institution for the work you've done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.